Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. My name is Hunter. And my name is Brittany. And we are the hosts of Murder and Such, a podcast about murders, death, serial killers, the macabre, and dark subject matter. Join us each episode while we take a more vulgar and explicit dive into cases that you may know and some you've never heard of. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, and most other podcast services. And be sure to follow us at Murder and Such on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We hope to hear from you soon. Stay weird. Ted Bundy. Jeffrey Dahmer. Ed Gein. Eileen Warnos. Edmund Kemper. Do all of these names sound familiar to you? We bet they do. Well, you're never going to hear them on our podcast. Nope. (laughs) I'm Brittany. And I'm Justine. And we're the hosts of It's About Damn Crime, a true crime podcast focusing on cases featuring people of color. And if you're looking for serious storytelling, this is not the place. No. (laughs) But we do promise, no matter how hardcore a true crime fan you think you are, we're going to tell you at least one story you've never heard of. So give us a listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, basically anywhere you can listen to podcasts. Or you can always check us out on our website at www.itsaboutdamncrime.com. And remember, there's a lot of desert out there. Sure is. Yep. Cheers. By the late 1960s, Bob Crane was a household name famous for his portrayal of the wisecracking Colonel Robert Hogan on Hogan's Heroes. Less than 10 years after the show was abruptly canceled, Crane's still unsolved murder brought to light his obsession with photographing and videotaping his numerous sexual encounters. In 2002, the life and death of Bob Crane was brought to the big screen in the movie Autofocus, which followed his rise to fame and concurrent transformation from a wholesome father of three to a sex addict, and finally, a murder victim. This is based on a true crime. I'm Chelsea, and I love true crime. And I'm David, and I love horror movies. And welcome to episode 19 of Based on a True Crime. Uh, Before we got started, you heard promos from some of our friends. Uh, The first one was Murder and Such. They're a really great kind of local podcast out of Dayton that I think I've talked about on the show before. They just came back from a short hiatus after moving. They've got a 
whole new studio set up, so you should definitely give them a listen. They had a, a really great episode recently about Florida Man, so kind of that internet meme with all of the crazy happenings in Florida where they're called Florida Man. They had a great episode on the Beverly Hills Supper Club fire, which was a tragedy that happened real close to us just in northern Kentucky. The other promo was for It's About Damn Crime, and this was personally a really exciting one for me to uh, to swap with because I've been listening to them for ages. I love the show. They focus on a lot of crimes with uh, minority perpetrators and victims, so things that you don't really hear about on a lot of podcasts. Uh, they've got some really great episodes. The most recent one was on the Zanku chicken murders in California. It was a great, you know, but obviously tragic story. Uh, right before that, it was the Miyazawa family murders, which is a really creepy story about a family who was killed. And then the guy like hung around in their house afterwards. <laughs> so, yeah, give them a listen. I really love their Stranger Dangers. They read stories of creepy encounters from their listeners and I just sent one in about my uh, my rest stop buddy, David. You know that story. Oh, yeah. All too well. <laughs> yes. So go give that a listen. You know, we don't curse much on our own podcast, but uh, that story does have some cursing. So I'm glad that it can be uh, it can be told. So, yeah, so be sure to check out uh, those two, Murder and Such, and It's About Damn Crime. There's one more kind of exciting uh, new development that David's going to tell you about. So uh, we recently recorded some crossover episodes with the little podcast of horrors. And that's Julie and Lisa's show. We had a really great time guesting as well as having Julie guest on our episode. Um, sadly, Lisa could not make it. We're looking forward to launching those episodes as well. Yes, uh, definitely check out. That'll be next week's mini-sode. Um, we also wanted to thank our new reviewers. Uh, thank you, Kevin, a.k.a. the Cleveland Strangler from the Brothers Commonplace, the really cool true crime and creepy stuff podcast out of uh, Cleveland. Thanks to uh, Jeremy. Thanks, Jam and Lady, for you. Thanks, Namie Nooper. Thanks to uh, the girls from It's About Damn Crime, although I promise they didn't bribe me for reviewing their podcast on our show. <laughs> and thanks to Debbie and Marguerite, which I know Debbie's a Debbie from our Facebook group, who's been amazing and super interactive. And I believe that that Marguerite is also in our Facebook group now, too. So we're at 63 reviews. You know, our minds are blown. Thank you guys so, so much. And uh, please keep them coming. Yeah, thanks everybody for those reviews. We have some correct guesses. Uh, we have Thomas on Facebook. <laughs> Wait, I, I guess I should really set that up as what a correct guess is uh, for our Teaser Tuesday, the correct guess of the upcoming episode where we post a teaser picture on our social media and then have um, yeah our listeners try to figure out what our topic is going to be. So Thomas on Facebook, uh, Last Hometown on Instagram, and also a shout out to Written Kitten on Instagram, um, to whom we broke the news that Bob Crane was murdered. Yes, sorry about that. <laughs> yes, and to Chippy TFT on Twitter. As always. Yes, thank you. All right, and before we get into it, I just want to say that this episode was a suggestion from our friends at off the cuffs podcast and you know, we obviously enjoyed it which we'll get into more and we also had the the treat of having them on our show so as a special part of our film discussion we're going to be sharing you know, what we talked about with you guys but before we get to the film discussion why don't we talk about the life and tragic demise of bob crane 
Robert Edward Crane was born on July 13th of 1928 in Waterbury, Connecticut, to parents Alfred and Rosemary Crane. He had one brother, Alfred John Crane, who was two years older than him. For most of his childhood, the family resided in Stamford, Connecticut, and Crane and his brother were raised as traditional Roman Catholics. In 1939, Crane attended the World's Fair in Flushing, New York, and there he witnessed Gene Krupa playing the drums. The experience inspired him to learn to play the drums, and he excelled at music while at school, where he was rarely seen without his drumsticks. He even took lessons in New York City from William Randolph Cozy Cole, a renowned jazz drummer, and hoped to play in a big band someday. But by the time he graduated high school in 1946, the swing era was already over. Instead, Crane got a job working as a watch repairman and a sales clerk at a jewelry store. He joined the U.S. National Guard in June of 1948, but was honorably discharged less than two years later in May of 1950. During this time period, on May 20th of 1949, Crane married his high school sweetheart, Anne Terzian. The couple would go on to have three children together, Robert David Crane, Deborah Ann Crane, and Karen Leslie Crane. Still hoping for a music-related career, Crane decided to pursue a job in radio. In March of 1950, he began working at WLEA in Hornell, New York. After nine months, he moved to WBIS in Bristol, Connecticut. And three months after that, in April of 1951, he moved to WLIZ in Bridgeport. In November of 1951, WLIZ bought out another station, which was WICC, and Crane became the program manager of the station in addition to having his own morning show. Crane's morning show caught the eye of CBS as Crane Show's ratings were beating those of CBS's Boston affiliate station. At first, CBS offered Crane a job for the Boston station, which he turned down. Meanwhile, CBS's KNX radio station in LA was looking to fill their morning time slot after Ralph Story resigned to host the $64,000 question. CBS offered this position to Crane, still wanting to remove the competition from their Boston station. Crane took the position on the condition that he could play his own records. He signed a five-year contract with KNX, and in August of 1956, Crane moved to L.A. with his wife and son. The Bob Crane Show premiered on September 3rd. Crane's radio show was truly revolutionary. He invented what became known as sampling, where instead of breaking his show into segments, the commercials and skits and music all flowed together into one seamless program. He became known as the, quote, king of the L.A. airwaves and also as the man of a thousand voices due to his talents as a voice impersonator. He interviewed thousands of celebrities during his time as a radio host, including Marilyn Monroe, Jack Lemmon, Jerry Lewis, Dick Van Dyke, and even former President Ronald Reagan. Wow, that's quite a um, back roster. Back when he was an actor, though, not yeah. when he was president. He also took the opportunity to have on the show many of the bands and drummers that he idolized in his youth. He even had a drum battle on air with uh, the very Gene Krupa, who had inspired him to begin drumming in the first place. Despite his new connections with the L.A. scene, Crane had a reputation for being a bit of a square because he didn't smoke or drink. Due to the success of his radio show, producers soon began contacting him about opportunities in television. KNX had actually anticipated this, and part of his contract forbade him from acting professionally for his first five years. When Crane was able to finally renegotiate the contract in 1961, the acting clause was removed and he was finally able to pursue a career in acting, which he did initially 
while continuing his radio station. He had guest appearances on The Twilight Zone, The Alfred Hitchcock Hour, and The Dick Van Dyke Show before scoring a recurring guest role playing Dr. Dave Kelsey on The Donna Reed Show. He acted on the show for nearly two years before leaving on good terms because he decided that he wanted to pursue more challenging roles. In December of 1964, Crane was approached by Jerry Thorpe, a Hollywood producer who wanted Crane to consider a role in a new series set in a prisoner of war camp during World War II in Nazi Germany. Crane was initially hesitant and insisted that a trailer for the show be shown to an audience of World War II veterans for their feedback. When they said that they liked the trailer and appreciated the humor, Crane agreed to do a screen test for the role of Colonel Robert Hogan on December 22nd of 1964. He clicked with the role and the other cast members immediately. And the pilot for Hogan's Heroes was filmed the week of January 7th, 1965 and picked up by CBS for its fall 1965 lineup. Although Crane initially tried to juggle his radio show with his filming of Hogan's Heroes, it quickly became too much. And on August 16th of 1965, he recorded his last KNX broadcast. So I guess the show didn't really survive that long. Um, the radio, radio show, show once yeah. he started the Hogan's Heroes. Well, Hogan's Heroes premiered on September 17th of 1965 to a skeptical audience who were concerned that a comedy set in Nazi Germany during World War II was disrespectful. There was also some confusion about it being set in a concentration camp rather than a POW camp. Crane was on the front lines of addressing the controversies, including going head-to-head with one radio personality, Stan Freeberg, who said of the show, quote, if you liked World War II, you'll love Hogan's Heroes. Such a burn. They even put that one in the movie. They did, yeah. Um, and actually, Taylor on Twitter was saying that she knew of the show, but like her dad refused to watch it because of the whole weirdness of a World War II comedy. Yeah, it's an odd juxtaposition. Well, Crane urged audiences to give the show a shot, and in the end they did. Hogan's Heroes was an immediate hit, with high Nielsen ratings for its six-season run. Crane quickly shot to fame and was nominated for an Emmy Award for Outstanding Lead Actor in a Comedy Series, in 1966 and in 1967. A former colleague of Crane, Pete Noyes, said that it was around this time that Crane began to frequent nightclubs with exotic dancers. He said, quote, don't you think it's a case of a guy getting away from his roots and all of a sudden being turned loose in that Hollywood culture? I remember. He was very faithful to his first wife, but Bob started hanging out at topless places. I could see over the 10 years a sort of personality change. Nobody could quite explain this. He was from a very strong Catholic family. He was a good Catholic boy. However, close friends would later say that Crane's proclivity towards extramarital affairs and pornography began much earlier than that, even taking place in the early 1950s while he was still living in Connecticut. In any case, his newfound fame was certainly a factor in the breakdown of his first marriage. In 1965, Crane began having an affair with Cynthia Lynn, who played Colonel Klink's secretary Helga on the show. She also allowed Crane to take nude photographs of her, which she said was Crane's hobby. After the first season of Hogan's Heroes, Cynthia left and was replaced by Patricia Olson, who played Clink's new secretary, Hilda. She said that Crane began hitting on her from day one and that he showed her a briefcase where he kept thousands of slides containing photographs of naked women and photographs of him having sex with women. In the late 1960s, while on the set of Hogan's Heroes, Crane met John Henry Carpenter. Carpenter worked for Sony and was tasked with helping wealthy customers learn how to use home video equipment, which was a technology that was at its infancy at the time. Carpenter was on set to help Richard Dawson with his equipment, but he and Crane quickly became friends, sharing an interest in picking up women at bars and at swing parties. Carpenter helped Crane to graduate from taking pornographic photos of his encounters to taking videos. 
Often, Carpenter would act as a cinematographer for these videos. Crane's on-set dressing room was a frequent setting where he would videotape sexual activities, including threesomes and auto-erotic behavior. The friendship was mutually beneficial at first. Carpenter provided the technological expertise, and Crane used his fame to attract women for them both. Crane would tell Carpenter that, quote, a day without sex is a day wasted. Crane finalized his divorce from his first wife in early 1970, and on October 16th of 1970, Crane married Patricia Olson on the Hogan's Heroes soundstage. Patricia said that she knew about Crane having sex with and filming multiple women, an activity which continued throughout their marriage. When asked in a later interview whether it bothered her, she said, quote, no, I know it sounds crazy. Maybe people listening to me will think I am crazy. Bob used these women. He said, I wish when I finished with them, I could just push a button and they'd fall through the floor and disappear. Now, how could I be jealous of something like that? He treated women like the rest of the world treats toilet paper. Who's going to be jealous of toilet paper? <laughs> Which, wow. Wow. Yeah, that I feel like as we'll get into later with his sons you know they talk about the dad being like a happy-go-lucky guy that just happened to really love women and sex but that quote makes it seem very sinister it does yeah Yeah. well on top of these uh we'll call them extracurricular activities crane was a workaholic uh while starring in hogan's heroes he guested on many other television shows and starred in two movies The Wicked Dreams of Paula Schultz and the 1969 remake of Arsenic and Old Lace. He also donated many hours of his time to work with the U.S. Armed Forces Radio Network between 1967 and 1969. And also in 1968, he hosted an episode of Operation Entertainment, which was filmed at Eglin Air Force Base at Fort Walton Beach. In 1971... Crane began working on developing a variety show based on Hogan's Heroes called Hogan's Heroes Review. He already had a contract in place to perform the show in Las Vegas, and it was going to co-star Werner Klemperer and Robert Clary. But in March of 1971, Hogan's Heroes was canceled and Hogan's Heroes Review was never produced. Although the ratings were still strong for the show, the viewership was concentrated in what was called a rural demographic and it was canceled as part of a rural purge, despite being initially contracted for seven seasons. Man, wow. the word rural. The rural juror. <laughs> I, yeah, that's a tough one. Wow. I did, yeah, that's really interesting that that happened. So can, can you explain, is a rural demographic like a older demographic? I don't or know. What? I'm guessing, uh, is it is the it actual Midwest? People who live in rural areas? Rural, perhaps. Perhaps we'll have to we'll have to look into that. Mm-hmm. Well, after the end of Hogan's Heroes, Crane's career prospects suffered from his being typecast. Eventually, he was offered his own show on NBC called The Bob Crane Show. The debut of the show was delayed from the fall of 1974 to the spring of 1975, and it finally premiered on March 6th of 1975. But it was a huge flop and it was canceled abruptly just two episodes in. Ouch. Wow. Ouch. Indeed. He did have some guest roles on other TV shows, including the Nancy Drew Mysteries and The Love Boat. He also starred in two Disney films, the 1974 film Super Dad and the 1976 film Gus, which both tanked. Have you seen either of those, David? No, I haven't. The only thing about Super Dad that I thought was kind of cool is Kurt Russell is in it. He's a youngster. Yeah, he must have been real young. Uh, he also filmed an episode of the Canadian television cooking show Celebrity Cooks in January of 1978. And he filmed a pilot for a new television series, The Hawaii Experience, in February of 1978. 
So they talk about the celebrity cooks or they show that celebrity cooks filming and they kind of have Bob Crane acting very strange in it in the movie. Well, a producer in the U.S. watched the episode and said that something was wrong with it. But apparently it's very exaggerated. And the episode actually aired in Canada. And the people behind the show said that Bob Crane was absolutely totally fine. So oh, I wasn't actually commenting on the breasts of women in the audience yeah. like uh, like in the movie. And actually, the Hawaii experience is a very early reality TV show going behind the scenes at like resorts in Hawaii. So I guess I it was ahead thing. of its time. Yeah, very much. But, you know, neither of these would air in the U.S. following Bob Crane's death later that year. Crane's most consistent role through the 70s was in dinner theater productions of the play Beginner's Luck. He started the play and also sometimes produced and directed it. He even reworked the script himself and submitted the changes he made to the original playwrights, Norman Barrich and Carol Moore. Around this time, his sexual lifestyle was becoming a strain both on his marriage and on his career. Although he kept his activities a secret from many of his extended family members and close friends, he was also very open about it with others, even bringing a reporter and photographer for an L.A. newspaper with him on a trip to a nudie bar. And network executives began to distance themselves from him. In 1977, Crane separated from his second wife, Patty. One point of contention was her belief that Crane was showing their six-year-old son, Scotty, his pornographic home videos. They discussed getting divorced, but reconciled shortly before his murder. While touring for the dinner play, Carpenter would occasionally fly out from L.A., and the two would spend several days partying together. After each performance, Crane would stay late to perform a monologue and chat with members of the audience who stayed late. It was a very efficient way for him to meet interested women while also on the road. Beginner's Luck was just finishing up a month-long run in Scottsdale, Arizona, when Carpenter flew out to visit Crane on June the 25th of 1978. Four days later, Crane was found bludgeoned to death in his Scottsdale apartment. Details of the days leading up to Crane's murder are murky. Crane gave no indications to anyone that anything was wrong between himself and Carpenter. On June 28th, Carpenter left the Windmill Dinner Theater after finishing that evening's performance of Beginner's Luck. At 11 that night, he and Carpenter went to Bogart's, where they were joined by a pair of female acquaintances for a meal. But Crane and Carpenter struck out with the women. The four went their separate ways a little before 2.30 a.m., Crane returned to his apartment and Carpenter returned to his room at the Sunburst Hotel, which was just one block away, to pack for his flight back to L.A. the following day. According to Carpenter, the two spoke on the phone for several minutes. Between 3 and 3.30 in the morning, someone snuck into Crane's bedroom and while he was sleeping, hit him once or twice with a weapon which police described as a, quote, blunt linear instrument which was never identified, although police suspected it may have been a camera tripod. The killer also tied an electrical cord in a bow around his neck, although he had not been strangled with it. His body was found later that afternoon by Crane's dinner theater co-star, Victoria Perry. Police were still in the apartment when, at 3.15 p.m., Carpenter called. Although the police answered and talked to him briefly, police thought it was weird that Carpenter never asked what they were doing in Crane's apartment, and they did not tell Carpenter that Crane had been killed. Carpenter next called Bob Crane Jr., Crane's son from his first marriage, but rather than informing him of the police in Crane's apartment, he said that he just wanted to chat and ended the conversation by asking Bob Jr. to contact him if he ever needed anything. The next day, Bob Jr. described this phone call to police as weird. Police were obviously suspicious of Carpenter and repeatedly interviewed him in the days following the murder. They also claimed to have found a tiny blood smear on the front passenger door interior of Carpenter's rental car, 
which matched Crane's blood type, which is the best way they could do at the time since this case predates DNA testing. In 1990, the door was retested and showed no sign of blood. Other than this, all the police had was really speculation. They had interviewed a waitress at a restaurant where Crane and Carpenter ate together two days before the murder, and she said that the pair were having a, quote, heated conversation. Police theorized that Crane was sick of having Carpenter around while picking up women and wanted to cut him off. It's also possible that Crane himself was trying to deal with his sex addiction, particularly as he was trying to mend his relationship with Patty. In the late spring, Crane sought out professional counseling and he was reportedly going to begin working with a psychologist specializing in sex addiction when he returned to L.A. on July 1st of 1978. Investigations into the case stalled out, but in the years following his death, the pornographic pictures which he took began to surface in the tabloids. The contrast between this new information and the kind of image in the public's conscious of Bob Crane as sitcom star Colonel Hogan gave him a new level of fame after death, and it also gave staying power to his story. The investigation into his death was reopened in 1990, and police found 26 new forensic photographs, which had been filed away in an evidence locker. One showed what the medical examiner believed could be brain matter on the window button of the passenger side door. The samples itself, though, were not available for analysis. And even the blood samples taken during the investigation had been allowed to deteriorate at room temperature for 12 years. Wow. (laughs) Yes. Still, the police considered this photograph to be the missing link that they needed. And on June 1st of 1992, they arrested Carpenter and charged him with first degree murder. During the trial, the prosecutor argued that Carpenter had snapped after Crane decided to end their friendship due to Carpenter being, quote, obnoxious and a, quote, hanger on. They also speculated that Carpenter may have had a romantic attachment to Crane. Carpenter's attorneys argued that all of the evidence in the case was circumstantial due to sloppy police work and that the police had focused in on Carpenter quickly and never considered the possibility of other suspects with strong motives, such as any jealous partners of the women he had sex with, or there was even an actor that he had fought with just months earlier, and this actor had sworn revenge on Crane. So unsurprisingly, I would say, Carpenter was acquitted, and he ended up dying four years later in 1998, still professing his innocence. And now that's that's kind of the end. I'll get into some more recent developments in the discussion, but you know, it's an interesting story, but I wouldn't say it's a particularly satisfying case because it is still unsolved. But as we discussed, Bob Crane had two sons. So Bob Jr. is his son with his first wife, Anne, and Scotty Crane is his son with Patty. Bob Jr., believes that Patty was actually in on the murder plot because she was the only one to benefit financially from his death. But of course, there's no evidence to this. And you kind of have to wonder whether there isn't some emotional reason he might want to blame, you know, the second wife. Yeah, no, it's a bit of a stretch. I feel like I guess the show has been on in reruns for (laughs) since it came out. But like, yeah, it's weird. Yeah. Well, Scotty Crane, actually Bob's son with Patty, instead ascribes more to the angry husband theory, which I think is really interesting. I'm surprised that the police did not investigate that further, but I'm also not really surprised because it seems like they completely botched their investigation. Well, it's interesting, too, that neither son, you know, blames John John Carpenter, not the director. 
Well, I have to wonder if you know, maybe they're kind of hoping it's someone else so that they can still get justice because, you know, Carpenter died after being acquitted. I seriously doubt in the coming years they're going to somehow prove that Carpenter did it. Not to say that I don't think he did it. That's my later discussion question that we'll get into. Okay. Cool. But this is kind of an interesting story. So in 2001, Scotty Crane launched bobcrane.com where he sold access to his late father's sex tapes he also sold a t-shirt for i think it was like 1795 or 1895 and it was a picture of bob crane standing behind a bent over naked woman and on the back of the shirt it had a quote from bob crane which is another one that they they brought up in the movie the quote is I don't smoke. I don't drink. Two out of three ain't bad. And Scotty insists that he made this website to dispel rumors that his father was into S&M and homosexuality. You know, it is true that there's no evidence in the photos of him being into either of those things. You know, there are photos of him in the midst of like orgies with more than one male present, but... You know, I don't think there's any indication that he's into either of those, at least based on the the photographs and videos. And then finally, more recently, in 2016, uh, new DNA tests were carried out on samples found in John Carpenter's car. They were not a match for Bob Crane. One was from an unknown male and the other was a partial profile, which was too degraded to be conclusive for anyone. I guess that was kind of disappointing, but also I feel like not surprising considering how that evidence had been taken care of over the years. So I guess the final question I have for you, David, is who killed Bob Crane? Do you know? <laughs> Do you know who killed Bob Crane? I don't know. I don't. After watching Autofocus, it I mean, it, it felt like John Carpenter, not the director, um, murdered him. But in, you know, reviewing the, the case, I guess there is a lot of I have a lot of questions. I have so many questions. I know. Willem Dafoe plays him like such a villain. I feel like you'd see him, the first shot of him in the movie, and it's like, it was the Green Goblin. The Green Goblin killed Bob Crane. Yeah, I think the casting of Willem Dafoe, and we'll get into this when we jump into the film discussion, definitely influenced kind of where where I was at in terms of <laughs> the story. But, you know, when when you mentioned the fact that, you know, there were probably a lot of people out there who... Bob Crane had had relationships with their partners and possibly some revenge motives. Yeah. And we talk about this a little in our discussion with Dick and Max from Off the Cuffs, but the idea that you know, not all of these pictures were taken consensually. You know, some of them were, but women have come out afterwards, you know, after seeing that there were pictures of themselves saying that like they didn't know that they were being photographed or filmed. And I think that can for sure be a motive. If, you know, they somehow find out or their partners find out um, and, you know, it it kind of I also think colors that that painting of Bob Crane is like just totally happy go lucky, harmless, you know, just like porn guy. You know, I, I don't think he's entirely dark and sinister, but I also don't think he's entirely innocent, just a guy that likes sex. I do feel like there's something more compulsive about his behavior. But I, I also agree that. I have no clue who killed him. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was just going to ask you. I was going to ask you yeah. that exact question. <laughs> yeah, it's you know, reading about the story. And, you know, I think that in terms of John Carpenter, he almost falls into that category of, you know, sometimes the simplest explanation is the right one. He was a block away. He was the last person to see or talk to Bob Crane. 
he talked to him on the phone within 30 minutes before he was killed and then flew to L.A. the next day, called the apartment, talked to cops, didn't ask what had happened. <sighs> I don't know. It's definitely suspicious behavior, but, you know, there's just no evidence, obviously, you know, since he was acquitted. On that note, why don't we uh, switch gears a bit and talk about the movie that gave us a bit more satisfying an ending with their very heavily implied uh, murderer. Yeah, sit tight and we'll be right back. Smile. It's a critical time for me. I, I need something big. This could be what you're looking for. This character, Hogan, he's quick on his toes, he's hip, he's a con artist. But I think it's what I've been working toward my whole career. I am such a fan. I just wonder if... A picture together? You betcha. Smile. Photography's always been my thing. I'm Bob Crane. John. John Carpenter. I'm a real if you like photography, you wouldn't believe this new equipment they sent me. It'll blow your mind. What will we do with it? Home movies. One of my clients is having a party up in the hills on Friday. Could be fun. Are you seeing another woman? Absolutely not. <laughs> oh. What's your secret? Three words. Don't make waves. You're a fortunate man. Yes, I am. There could be a very serious conflict here between your lifestyle and your career. How many women are there? How yeah, many? Thinking about getting out. Well, we got a good thing going, Big Daddy. Why ruin it? Bob Crane is a good guy. Bob Crane's a loser! I don't know about you guys. I got things to hide. I want to restart my career. If I were to send you out again, I'd have to be able to tell people you're a new man. Well, tell them sex is normal. And snap! Snap it up, snap it up. It's good for you. I'm normal. Before it's too late. Snap! And we are back. So Autofocus is the 2002 Paul Schrader-directed biopic of actor Bob Crane who, as we uh, mentioned, the star of Hogan's Heroes. The premise of the show is that prisoners of war, um, POWs, are actually using the camp as a base of operations for Allied espionage and sabotage against Nazi Germany, as well as to help Allied POWs from other camps and defectors to escape Germany, including supplying them with civilian clothes and false information. So if Paul Schrader's name sounds familiar, it's because he wrote or co-wrote four Martin Scorsese films, including Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, The Last Temptation of Christ, and Bringing Out the Dead. He's also a prolific director of films, which include Hardcore, American Gigolo, Cat People, which is an awesome, awesome movie, Dominion, which is a prequel to The Exorcist, and, well... Summing up his career, a bunch of others. Um, you know, Taxi Driver and Raging Bull alone, those films are considered, I believe, masterpieces. Autofocus stars Greg Kinnear as the one and only Bob Crane. Willem Dafoe, as we mentioned, plays John Henry Carpenter, not the director. John Carpenter's middle name is not Henry. I actually don't know what John Carpenter's middle name is, but it is not the same person. Maybe we should invent a middle name for him like we did uh, Fred Krueger. I think it's John Myers Carpenter. Yeah, that's all good. I think it's John Malachi Carpenter. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Exactly. Rita Wilson plays Anne Crane, Bob Crane's wife. 
And Maria Bello plays Patricia Olsen, a.k.a. Patricia Crane, a.k.a. Sigrid Valdis. So that's the main cast. And since we're going to be talking with the Off the Cuffs podcast about Bob Crane and his life and about the movie, I wanted to discuss an article that was originally published before the film's release. And it is in the September 29, 2002 episode of the New York Times Magazine written by Lynn Hirschberg, and it's titled, First Came the Sitcom, Then Came the Murder, Then Came the Pornographic Website. Now, here comes the Hollywood biopic. I feel like that should be the tagline for the movie also. All right. Well, the link to this article will be in the show notes, but I wanted to kind of walk through uh, sort of an introduction to the article, and then I pulled some quotes from director Paul Schrader, as well as Scotty Crane and uh, Bob Jr. that I thought were really interesting um, about some of the things that we hit on in the first portion of the episode. So introducing the article, it starts with, quote, had Bob Crane not been a sex addict, had he not been bludgeoned to death with his own tripod in an Arizona condo surrounded by an elaborate array of video equipment, had he not photographed hundreds of women naked in twosomes and threesomes and orgies and had his murder not gone unsolved, he would not be the subject of a new feature film. He would be remembered if he was remembered at all as the star of Hogan's Heroes, a hit CBS comedy that ran from 1965 to 1971 and was set in a POW camp during World War II. As the star of Hogan's Heroes, Crane enjoyed the same kind of fame as Gilligan or Greg Brady. His character became part of America's collective pop culture nostalgia. Embalmed by syndication, Crane would have been the wisecracking Hogan forever. But in the years since his death in 1978, when the porno pictures started surfacing in the tabloids and his secrets began to unravel, Crane became infamous. And in the age of Behind the Music and The Osbournes, Decadence and self-destruction make for the best kind of celebrity. I love that. I think it's great. I think it's really true. Both of my parents have seen Hogan's Heroes. You know, they recognize Bob Crane by name, but, you know, also what stood out to them in their minds were these stories that came out after his death about, you know, his porn collection, I guess, if you want to call it that. And when we were announced we were doing the episode, you know, we got multiple people like the porn guy. The guy with the weird porn. So it's kind of unfortunate almost that that's kind of become his legacy. But you have to wonder if without the porn collection, there would be much of a legacy at all. And I think that his story is not unique where, you know, even though he did have this sex addiction, maybe that predates his fame on Hogan's Heroes, the story of the actor who goes to Hollywood and hits it big and breaks up with his high school sweetheart, I feel like. You see that pretty often nowadays, too. Paul Schrader has a great quote, and his quote is, quote, The attraction of Bob Crane was, here's the guy that people think they know, but they don't. This film ripples with ideas. The evolution of American male sexual identity, the corrosive effect of celebrity, even minor celebrity, and the rise of home pornography. Yet Crane is a relatively minor character. He was a so-so sitcom actor. As a person, he wasn't much better. But. He was perfect in his lack of awareness, so he can become an emblem without doing great insult to history, which isn't such a positive look at all of Bob Crane, but I think it's an interesting statement on celebrity. It is, but I also feel like you can kind of see in that quote why, as we'll get into it later, Bob Crane Jr., who was the son of the first marriage Bob Crane had that dissolved 
he was cooperative with the movie. He consulted on it. He worked with Paul Schreider, you know, and I'm sure he had an idea of Bob Crane in his mind because, you know, his father left the family coinciding with this rise to fame that like, yeah, fame is bad. Bob Crane is bad. You know, so a so, so sitcom actor, you know, who's just an emblem and nothing more. But meanwhile, you know, Scotty Crane, who you know was the son of his second marriage and may have been somewhat party to his father's exploits, you know, his his mom was seemingly okay with it, at least at first. And although there's not evidence that he actively showed his pornographic videos to his son, because his son was very young at the time, seems like he did have it in accessible places at the house. So it was not a secret. And I think that his view of his father is very different because, you know, that's all he's known <laughs> is his father you know, engaging in those sorts of activities and it being okay, which what consenting adults do, I feel like is okay. But it seemed like it was affecting his home life and his work. He was looking into getting therapy for sex addiction. So I think that it was not not a problem, in my opinion. Definitely. And it's it's just interesting how the two sons um, do see their father differently and just their perception of the movie itself. Scotty Crane was not consulted on the film, but Paul Schrader did talk to him on several occasions, as well as the author of this article, Lynn Hirschberg. Just to start things off, Scotty Crane quoted as saying uh, in the article that, quote, this movie is autofiction. Schrader's idea is to make my dad dark. Let's make him seedy. Let's make him Travis Bickle from Taxi Driver. He's portraying a fiction as fact. Schrader has destroyed my father's reputation in the world. He was a happy-go-lucky guy. I'm just glad that my website represents the real Bob Crane. Yeah, and and as you had mentioned about the website, you know, at the time, I think there's definitely, at least what I kind of took out of it, is that, that Scotty Crane is really in promotion mode for the website while being frustrated, I guess, at his father's portrayal in the film. I think from the timeline of the article, I think he had read the script, but I don't know if he had screened the film or not. Um, yeah. at the time. And I'm sure it's not a coincidence that the website started in 2001 and the movie came out in 2002, you know, especially since he was kind of, you know, he was sort of consulted in the lead up to the movie. I feel like he saw the movie going in a certain direction. He was like, I'm going to, you know, maybe also seeing he could capitalize on people interested in the story after seeing the movie and also feeling like he needs to provide a counterpoint to the movie's portrayal of his father. Oh, yeah. So, from shifting from Scotty to uh, Bob Jr. says, quote, my father had a vasectomy in 1968 and Scotty was born in 1971. That's all I have to say. Ooh, so mean. Yeah, I know. And wow. the, the vasectomy line comes up in the movie, but not. He says that it like it leaks or something. Yeah. 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 But it didn't. That didn't take. Um, but yeah, whew, that's a that's a burn, I guess. Uh, I mean, it just shows that their relationship has, you know, not been. Very great. Um, also, Bob Jr. is quoted as saying, is this how he really wants to have his dad remembered? What I want to say to my so-called half-brother, Scotty, is get a job. Oh, my goodness. I know. So, yeah, it, it just seems to be a, a kind of a tension over a highly public father between these two step-siblings. And, you know, it happens. Uh, and regarding, you know, the, the family, Paul Schrader says, quote, I could never have dreamed these people up. Actually, I don't think dream is the word fantasize is more accurate wouldn't it be great if there were these kinds of characters for every movie bad behavior is so compelling and i think that kind of romanticizes the feud a bit um yeah. i also think he's implying by that that you know these are how these people actually were and he's absolutely taken some liberties with the characters i think one big thing was you know his portrayal of 
Bob Crane's downfall where he started out being this, you know, totally perfect church going father of three who, you know, had some nudie mags in the garage. Oh, no. And then, you know, very slowly kind of started this spiral downwards. And that does not seem to be the case because friends have said that the cheating started much earlier, that, you know, even in Connecticut in the 1950s, he was exploring you know, that side of himself. And you have to think that, or at least I think that that might be true just based on the fact that during that very first season of Hogan's Heroes, he was comfortable starting an affair with the co-star and photographing her. And she said that that was already his hobby at the time. So this was not something that came along with Hogan's Heroes. It was something that, you know, perhaps got worse as it became easier for him to access more women with the fame he got from Hogan's Heroes. But to me, it's pretty obvious from looking at the true story that, you know, he kind of made it a bit of a caricature, which he himself said that, you know, Bob Crane is an emblem in the movie. You know, it's not necessarily a straight up biopic. Um, I just wanted to kind of end the the excerpts of the article with a, a quote from Paul Schrader where he says, Bob Crane doesn't really matter. He's not important. I never would have been interested in him. He's just a way to make a point. And his family, such as they are, keep making the point over and over again. I used Bob Crane as a metaphor for the corrupting influence of even minor celebrity, and his family have fleshed out my premise. They are the movie. Only like Bob, they don't know it. And, I mean, uh, his quotes are really kind of, awfully mean he sounds like a dick he sounds very yeah he sounds very um above the source material and um i think he's being unnecessarily mean towards bob crane and he did make a film about him i don't think that the movie works on a level that you could insert anyone in the movie is interesting because it's about the guy from hogan's heroes like I don't think that if you put a generic protagonist in Crane, played by Greg Kinnear, who I thought did an amazing job, like so much of the movie is about reenactments of them filming the show. It's about his celebrity. It's about people recognizing him from Hogan's Heroes. I just don't see the movie working with just anyone. And, and you know, the fact that he's saying that it's the a metaphor for the corrupting influence of even minor celebrity, like, that, I don't buy it. Honestly, those quotes make me like the movie a lot less than I did after just watching it, which I really enjoyed watching the movie. You know, you you did too. It was good. But man, you know how I feel about auteurs. And I feel like he's being a bit of an auteurd. Ha ha. He didn't write it though, so it's okay. He's not an auteur in this one. But yeah, I know what you mean. Ha 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 ha. (laughs) (laughs) To me, I just use, I I don't believe there's a definition of auteur. That's just what I call filmmakers that are being jerks. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> that are tooting their own horn a little a little too much. Toot, toot. Let me decide if he's a metaphor for whatever you're saying. And don't diss the family, you know, especially after they consulted on the movie with you and helped you get it done. That's just very rude. I'm sorry, Paul Schrader, but you probably spent four weeks recreating a scene from Hogan's Heroes. So... I don't know what your metaphor is with that. On that note, as we're getting into our opinions about the movie, we're going to segue now into our discussion with the Off the Cuffs podcast, where we talk a little bit about what we thought of the movie, but more importantly, they talk about what they thought of the movie. So let's do this. Yep. We'll be right back. So welcome, everyone, to... 
a special segment of our episode on the murder of Bob Crane. We are here with Dick from Off the Cuffs, the uh, BDSM and kink podcast that you've heard so much about on our show over the the last couple months. And we're excited to finally have our crossover in place. And I just wanted to start. So this movie was actually suggested to us by Dick. And I wanted to start by asking you um, kind of why. What is it about the movie autofocus or about the murder of Bob Crane that stood out to you and made you suggest this movie to us? Uh, Well, I I think it's kind of a a not really that well-known kind of true crime story because a lot of it doesn't really focus on the the crime aspect that really comes in more towards the end of it. Uh, And it's it's really just more of a, I guess, more of a biopic about about his life, which was kind of interesting and he kind of led this seedy sort of uh private life that that kind of bled into his career and kind of i guess ruined it in a lot of ways um and i have some feelings on that (laughs) i guess uh as a as a person who kind of is involved in uh sex work i guess you could say um but yeah, I don't know. I just thought it was an interesting story. And I really, um, you know, I'd been listening to your show and, and, and I was like, ooh, I wonder if they even ever heard of this movie. So I just kind of figured, hey, uh, throw it out there. <laughs> yeah, that's cool because, you know, I knew of Hogan's Heroes. I remember like when I was a kid, it was on reruns and, and I knew about that. And I had like a vague recollection that he was something had happened to him <laughs> in the late 70s. Um, but it was really very interesting to see this like biopic of, you know, his career and then untimely death, I suppose. Yeah. And um, I've, I'd heard of the name Bob Crane, but I had never seen Hogan's Heroes. I guess I kind of wonder if his case would be better known if it had been solved. It's really interesting to me. You know, as you said, the movie's not really about his murder. That's the very last scene in the movie. It's more about his life and the lead up and what kind of maybe led to his murder, but of course there's no way of knowing because it is unsolved, even though the movie does kind of strongly imply that it was John Carpenter. Right. Not, not, uh, not the director, John Carpenter <laughs> also, <laughs> but <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think that adds a nice little element to it too. When you're coming into it cold and you're like, wait, John Carpenter, hang on. What? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, it does heavily imply, and I think it's sort of, like people that follow the case are sort of like, yeah, everyone kind of knows he did it, but there's no way to, you know, prove it or or like they kind of, I guess they had botched it and they don't really get too much into that. It's sort of just kind of, um, kind of swept up at the end in like a narration, uh, about how the, the case was sort of done. And I actually don't know that that much about the actual case. I actually, um, the most, the, the mostly what I know about it is from the movie. And then, uh, I had gotten into, I checked out a couple of episodes of Hogan's Heroes because I found out that that show was kind of loosely based on Stalag 17, which is one of my favorite movies. And uh, it's like sort of like a comedy version of that. Yeah. I don't know if you guys ever saw that. I never did. Yeah, no, I haven't seen it. Um, but I've heard it mentioned. So it's, it's, uh, it's something. It's yeah, good. It's, it's real. William Holden's and it's a real good movie. Check that out too. <laughs> So what were your kind of overall impressions 
of this movie, I guess beyond it just being about Bob Crane, you know, what did you like about it or not like about it? It's interesting because some of the, I feel like the life he led was very like dicey and problematic. um, But also there's like part of me that's like, looks at it as kind of a tragedy in some ways because, and not even about the death stuff. I mean, about the like sex, um, the sexual aspect to his life because um, it was also private and, you know, you know, there's things like, you know, we have like words for things now, like ethical non-monogamy and things like that. And uh, he was not very like, uh, he was not practicing ethical non-monogamy. He was just cheating on his wife, uh, his first wife. And, uh, they kind of spill into some of that stuff with, with his second marriage in the movie. Um, but again, it's sort of, it also ties into, I guess, like the time. Uh, it feels very, it kind of makes sex seem like a shameful thing. And uh, I know that they're sort of pushing that because that's like the the era that the movie is supposed to be taking place in. And I feel like it does a good job of kind of setting that as the standard of the time and not pushing a message overall that says like sex is bad um, which is kind of what I appreciate about it um, and I think just like the film itself I love the way it starts and it's and he's just like this wholesome guy and it kind of starts off with this like very 1960s clean uh, like thing and every, all the shots are very static and and like as the movie goes on and his life is like unraveling I don't know if you noticed it gets more like shaky and like everything's like handheld that like there's a scene towards the end where he is talking to his manager and it's like so uncomfortable, just like it's dark and like the camera's so shaky that it's like, ugh, like it makes your stomach hurt watching it. Like, I love it. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I thought they did a really great job kind of watching as he progresses from, you know, the 60s seeming like this really um, like positive pastel colored time. No, not only in general, but in his life. And then, you know, you go into the 70s and suddenly, you know, the stripper who had little pasties on is now completely naked and it's just getting like more raw. And then you know, they're they're pretty graphic in the um, the final scene. I feel like they could have just had there be, you know, blood spray on the wall and then fade to black. But you know, they they went full out with showing the his brains getting bashed in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, which is you know true to the real story. I did notice what was interesting. Like, I loved how they did his voiceover and the fact that it actually continued on past when he died. You know, him kind of narrating his life and death. And I know at one point, you know, he says, "I don't smoke, I don't drink. Two out of three isn't bad." Um, And kind of that idea. You know, I, I agree that they do. You know a good job while not you know, normalizing his own behavior. But you do think about things like, is it that bad that he had porn rags in his garage? Right. Like maybe that would have been bad in the sixties, but you know, that kind of thing is pretty widely accepted. You know, I would say among most people that it's not, you know, deviant right. in any way. Yeah. So, yeah. So your podcast is a BDSM and kink podcast so what did you think about the portrayal of you know his sex life and his addiction you know, I I know that in some cases the women knew that they were being filmed but you have to assume that in some cases they didn't right. so 
not everything he did was consensual, but you know, he did seem to have a thing for filming himself having sex. Would that be considered, you know, his his kink? <laughs> or you know what what were your impressions of that i i don't know because it's 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 tough to you know it's tough to say like when you when you get into things that are that are like non-consensual because like yeah sure like there are there are people that have kinks that are that are non-consensual but like i guess it's like it doesn't make it i guess excusable is really i guess the word i'm looking for and and it's like that's kind of what i meant before when i said it's it's a bit of a tragedy in in terms of like he was almost like a, a person who didn't understand that you actually could like fulfill and achieve these things uh, consensually with a person. And it was more like him and his friend were just kind of like big kids that just were like, Ooh, like we're doing this kind of sneaky thing. And uh, so I don't, I don't know. Like it's, it's, it's interesting because like you, you like sort of feel bad for him, like in some ways, but then you're also like, Oh, well you were, like kind of like shitty to people so <laughs> it's it's kind of a dicey issue um but i think i don't know it's it's definitely something i i wouldn't say it was like like his kink to like do that it was just i think it was more of a thing where he he just found this this kind of like dark hole that that gave him pleasure and like he just kind of kept going instead of uh figuring out a way to kind of do it more ethically so that's that I guess that's my impression of it. Yeah, and I think it's interesting to me that this is kind of coinciding with the technology coming out that you know made this something he could do. Right. So he was clearly into pornography before he got the video camera, but you know his connection with Carpenter made you know gave him the ability to film these things and he it seemed like he kind of couldn't stop and they say reading about Bob Crane, they call him a sex addict. And I think that you know, that's that's fair. And I think that there are a lot of stories about that in um, in Hollywood, I guess, where you have couples and one of them becomes very famous and you know, the, the temptation is there and they give in and they cheat. But it seemed to me that Bob Crane was kind of a very extreme example. It seemed to really go beyond just... Yeah. You know, cheating on his wife. Right. Um, so. Yeah. And the thing, you know, I was thinking about John Carpenter's character. He didn't have the, the best, I guess, guide in order to steer him through all of this newfound fame and, and sort of discovering himself. Yeah. To me, it just seemed like he could have had a much better friend. And like you said, the ethics behind it, you know, maybe he would have he would have been more conscientious of that. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I thought I, I think a lot of the stuff with them too, like their relationship was definitely interesting. I really liked um sort of the I mean, if you do take it to someone who's like I guess has a problem, if you want to call it that, with like like having like a sex addiction, I, I like how they kind of portrayed uh where he the first time they, they shoot like a video of them and he kinda has that kind of gay panic moment of like, Why were you touching my ass? And John Carpenter's like, oh, well, it's an orgy. Like, what do you expect? And then, and then, you know, and he flips out about it, Bob Crane. And then, like, as time goes on and then he kind of, like, needs something, he kind of, like, willing to look past it. And then as it gets even further into it and he goes for they go kind of further into this lifestyle, it's sort of like he's almost just, like, expecting of it. And, and he gets more, like, I guess, cozy with it, um, which is, like, it's weird because... 
part of me like watches something like that and I'm like, hmm, like, are you normalizing that to yourself to get what you want? Or are you like kind of growing as a person and becoming more accepting of something like homosexuality? And it's like, you'd like to think that like, okay, like maybe this person's just uh, growing. Uh, but in, in this case, it kind of feels a little more dirty and kind of like, well, um, I'll accept it as long as like I'm getting what I want type of thing. And I thought that was a little bit interesting and came off like that too. I think that's definitely true, especially, you know, the scene where after they get into the big fight, the only reason he finally reaches back out to John Carpenter is because his, you know, I guess it's not really a VCR. VTR, yeah. The VTR, yes. That's that's the only reason. So it it does feel, you know, very self-serving. But you do kind of wonder if they weren't both being pretty self-serving because Bob Crane really was you know, the reason that Carpenter was kind of getting to live out his fantasies. You know, it was using Bob Crane for his fame. Yeah, and you see that especially with, um, like, he was he was first kind of nuzzling up with Richard Dawson, and then he kind of, like, sc- like kind of ditches Dawson because, like, Crane was more famous and... It was it definitely, there's definitely some, they're both using each other in, in, in ways. And it was a, what's that, like symbiotic uh, relationship? Is that what that's called? <laughs> yeah, yep. Okay, so um, as a, you know, kind of a follow-up. So according to Bob Crane's son, his father wasn't actually into BDSM. And that sort of brief scene really about it was added to the movie by the director based on his own experiences. So... What did you think of, you know, that, I mean, it, it felt, it did feel a bit shoehorned in, um, and that was the, the scene at the club um, where he, he talked to the, uh, the dominant. Yeah, what I thought was interesting about it, and, and it's weird because, like, that scene itself, I think, is less important than the follow-up where he's talking about, like, when he gets off, like, doing, like, a kink thing. And it's like riding a roller coaster and like this and that, like, and, and, you know, and I think that was really, I could understand why you would put a scene like that in to kind of like, or even shoehorn it in just to have that follow up scene where he's talking about like, he's specifically talking about orgasming, like, and how it's like better, like when you're doing this, like others, other stuff. And I I guess like, I don't know, I didn't realize, I, I think I'd ever knew that that was kind of put in there as a secondary thing. Um, and I guess... I don't know if it necessarily bothers me. I guess because from a storytelling standpoint, it kind of makes sense. It's just like, oh, like, you know, he's getting further into this and like it's kind of upping. It's like, you know, trying to chase that first high and like looking for things like that. And uh, I think I get it. I think it was kind of cool. I mean, that's also it, it, it's such a brief scene, too, where there's so many different forms of like kink and BDSM. I mean, there's like people who there's people who do it at home and don't even realize that they're doing it, you know, like, and then there's people who are kind of part of a public community that go out to dungeons. And then there's people who are like more professional and like you, that will, you'll have like your dominatrixes and things like that. And it's just like, there's no, I think that it, even the scene itself was such a small sliver of that lifestyle that it didn't really have any kind of impact on like any kind of statement so about BDSM. Oh, look who decided to show up. <laughs> Are we already Welcome. recording? Oh yeah, we're we've been okay. recording for, for twenty minutes. Hi, I'm Max. 
Hi. Uh, hey, got caught in traffic. Hey, How you doing? Kind of seeing uh, a little bit. I got caught in a lot of traffic. Oh. There's no such thing as getting caught in traffic. You are the traffic. No oh, worries. Fine. We uh, uh should have left earlier. <laughs> That's what it comes down to. Yeah. All right. Well, now that you're here, why don't you just kind of jump okay. in and tell us what you thought of the movie in general? Basically, we've covered the first four questions. Okay. So. You know, what you thought of the movie, what you thought about the portrayal of, you know, kink, the little edition of BDSM, which is kind of what we were just talking about on now. Um, and just, well, I think yeah. Bob, uh, yep, let's go for Bob it. Bob Green's analysis uh, of it being like a roller coaster. Yeah. Did you go over that? A bit vaguely. Yeah. I think that's very accurate. Yeah. And also, um, he has a line, um, what is it? Uh, Atlanta's a good town for, for dominance. Actually, true. That that BDSM scene is huge in Atlanta. Yeah, and the um that scene apparently was added. You you we were supposed to look over the questions they sent before, okay. uh, but you got here in the middle of the episode. Yeah. So okay. Uh, uh, that th- that scene was apparently added by the director, and Bob Crane apparently was not really into kink. Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah. I, I read that. That. Oh, look at that! I did. Whoa, I did a little research. <laughs> His son said, out of the the hundreds of home movies he had, none of them had had BDSM in them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Um. Yeah. But that was Paul Schrader when he made Hardcore. Yeah. He actually went to BDSM clubs in in Manhattan, and that's where he he dallied in BDSM a little bit. So. Right on. Cool. Yeah, I guess. What was interesting about the scene to me is, you know, it it is introducing the idea of BDSM, but I don't think it's casting it really in any sort of light. It's just kind of here's an idea yeah. that's being presented. Yeah. So I think it, I guess you know from your impression, so is is that a good thing? Is it kind of bringing bringing something to the surface? Maybe making people ask questions, or is it kind of not great that they put it in a movie that's about someone's ultimate downfall and honestly murder. i look at it more of a as a as a as a as a plot device as being more than anything like i don't really like we were saying how it's such a small thing i don't think i think that's a scene that you could completely like kind of miss and yeah. gloss over and just be like oh like what you know there was a scene where he was talking to a dominant woman okay like yeah. you know um but but i think that the you know if you watch if you watch something and you're paying attention to it and you're you know you're catching those little nuances i think that like like i kind of said before it's sort of just pushing the character further into this hole of 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 you know quote unquote depravity or whatever. Yeah. Um. And I think that that's really it's implied that sex addiction led him to BDSM. Sort of in in some ways. Yeah. I mean, I, I I was talking about how you know it's kind of a weird tragedy and not even the death part about how you know he was um you know he could have been practicing like ethical non monogamy but right. like he was kind of doing it in a very shitty way and she kind of did with the second wife but he did with the second wife a bit but it even even then it was more like he was trying to get away and go meet up with john and like stuff like that so yeah Yeah, i don't know i i don't think it i don't think it has enough impact in the movie um other than just being that little bit of extra here's this thing um to kind of push something like uh you know it's not starting any discussions like the uh like the 50 shades of uh yeah, gravy fries true. or whatever <laughs> <laughs> but you know which which we have our own opinions about so can i assume that you guys did not like that movie i didn't see the movie i didn't see the i didn't see the movie i read the i read the first book recently mm-hmm. um and i and it, it's just 
it is what it is. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a, a fantasy. It's a fantasy. It's it, not, it's not, it's not depicting like the, the BDSM lifestyle at right. all. It's very, it's very dicey. It kind of makes us all seem like weirdo freaks that are like damaged and need to yeah. do this to like, even though in my case, uh, you know, that's sort of vaguely true. It's like, kind I'm of not, true for all of us, but, <laughs> but it's also yeah, not like, right. <laughs> not in the way it's presented, not in the way it's presented. Yeah. Like, you know, I, I think, I think a lot of times people, sometimes people are just into it because they're into it. And then there's mm-hmm. other times where you get into it and you find that you can use it as this sort of weird, it's like kink is not therapy, but you can use it therapeutically. Yeah. And I think that that's sort of uh, something that's like beautiful about it that the, that the 50 shades doesn't really cover. Um mm-hmm. Yeah, but we could do an episode on that movie if you want. <laughs> Was there a crime in that movie? No. <laughs> <laughs> The crime is that I spent $10 on a ticket. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I spent 10 minutes reading the Wikipedia page of all three movies. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So, Mac, what did you think of the movie, though? Did you like oh, it? Yeah. Did you, were there things you didn't like? Is it overall you liked I did, it? Yeah. I, um, I, I watched it again last night just to, to refresh myself to prepare for doing this. And the thing that I kept coming back to about the movie was the costume design and the production design. We record in the basement of a vintage clothing shop. And all I could keep thinking is this must be our landlord's favorite movie <laughs> because the, the, the just those mid 60s to mid 70s, you know, that design is amazing. Yeah. Um, you know, um, but there's stuff I really liked about it. Um I love that it has uh, music by uh, Angelo Baldamenti, and I probably mispronounced his name there, who was m- most notably did uh, David Lynch soundtracks. Yeah. So there's like this real horror element to the score, even though it's not a horror film. Yeah. Well, a traditional horror film. Right. Yeah. I don't. I wouldn't call it horror at all. I mean, crime you know. drama, I guess. Yeah. yeah. There's sort of that scene where he spaces out during the the filming. Of Hogan's Heroes, and it gets a little yeah. abstract. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and I felt that was a that was a great scene. Oh, yeah, yeah, that scene's great. Yeah, I really, I really like that. There's yeah. another one later on too. I think that that it's it's a little different. And then they do because they do a couple of things like that, and then they also they they revisit that whole uh, that dinner theater play that he's doing. Right, and it's, like and it's the same thing over each, and over. But yeah. each time it gets like a little lazier. I think right. the performance yeah. is like a little kind of more like disconnected. And, <laughs> right. Yeah. I thought that was interesting too. Yeah. Like, what does she look right. like? <laughs> I don't remember. Yeah. yeah, it just gets broader and broader. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Let's see. So, um, one thing I want to talk about. So we we had actually kind of touched upon this. Um, but now that Max is here, we can talk about it a little bit more. So kind of the relationship between Bob Crane and John Carpenter. You know, it's a very important thread in the movie. They lead you to believe that you know, John Carpenter is the one who killed Bob Crane. And it is maybe somewhat implied that, you know, there may be some, I don't know, about attractions specifically between John Carpenter and Bob Crane or just you know, the kind of draw of John Carpenter to Bob Crane where when Bob Crane wants to cut off the relationship, you know, it ultimately um, kind of breaks him in a way. Um, so just kind of what did you think of that? Oh, me? Yeah, go ahead. Um, well, 
like I said, I did my research on the actual crime part. And if I remember correctly, that was the prosecution's whole argument was that Carpenter was secretly in love with Crane for those 20 years, if that or 10 years, however long it was. If that's right. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, and yeah. yeah, no, I think that's what the movie does is really imply that. I mean, there's the, you know, the, the scene where they, he outright grabs his ass or whatever. Yeah. And then that uh, scene where they're just watching porn and masturbating together. I that I love that scene. I love how matter of fact that scene is. I know. And yeah. it, it, it's really it's really funny because like I'm watching that and I was thinking about like how many times are we recording our podcast and not not that we're doing that, but we're both like kind of like, oh, that's so hot when someone says yes. something. And I'm just like, yes, I'm watching that scene. And I was like, is this what we're going to become someday? Like, I had the same thought. The I table, had the exact like, ah. same thoughts. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, if I ever uh, uh, get found beaten to death with a with a microphone yeah. stand, it was uh, me. Yeah, it was him. Yeah. <laughs> oh no! Oh no! All right, you heard it here first. Oh. <laughs> uh, um, but yeah, no. As as for their their overall relationship, it's just that the movie presents them as just both such broken people. Yeah, that you know they just. You know that that only friend in the world thing that they they're just completely incapable of making normal relationships beyond you know the guy that you go to swingers clubs with, right? Yeah, yeah. that's what I was kind of trying to go into before too. Is I was like, you know, it's weird because the the movie I felt like it didn't at least like demonize like that lifestyle. It was more them and yeah. the way that they did it and yeah. the way that they went about it. Because there's really like there's nothing wrong with like swinging or anything like that. I mean mm -hmm. that's not really my thing, but like that's there's you know there's nothing wrong with it. It's just you know you can't not tell your wife you're doing it and call yeah. it swinging. That it's called cheating. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. Like there's yeah. <laughs> but that was I mean that was part of the whole premise of the movie was the the dichotomy by behind it. Like he still saw himself as this church going right. You know. Uh, wholesome family man right know? that was just what he did at night yeah yeah <laughs> there's even elements of it that like i would say are like kind of awesome to make arguments that like you know things should be a little bit more open and and and, and broader because if you you know when you have these things and you're repressing them mm -hmm. like you know bad things happen right. <laughs> you know yeah. so yeah I, I don't know i think that their i think that their friendship is is definitely uh the way it's portrayed, I think, I think kind of like pushes that too. Yeah. That, like, you know, you can have something and, and, you know, nurture it or like, or like nurture it either for good or the unhealthy side of it. And they sure. were definitely, you know, nurturing the unhealthy side of it. And we, I even said, I think we said before they were kind of using each other in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. They were just enabling each other, right? With the, um, you know, Carpenter was supplying all the video equipment. Right. Bob Crane was supplying the contacts and yeah. just went back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's interesting to me. You know, we've covered a couple of cases. We did um, In Cold Blood right. with uh, yeah. Hickok and Smith. We did the Leopold and Loeb case and kind of getting these pairs of people together where they sort of feed off each other and it kind of becomes like a snowball going down a hill and ultimately leads to disaster yeah. and I guess I kind of felt like maybe something similar happened between Bob Crane and John Carpenter just speculation <laughs> no one no one was found guilty so um 
ghost, but I do think that's how it's kind of portrayed in the movie, yeah. at least. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, and they don't, it's not that they're towing the line, but it's like, you know, when, when Bob Crane is like, I need to step back, and John Carpenter's like, almost approaching it as it's like very finite and it's a breakup, yeah. but then you hear, you know, Bob on the other other side is saying like, I'll call you tomorrow, buddy, or whatever, you know, it's like, it's, yeah, yeah, and while while John Carpenter's like it's over. Yeah, you know? yeah. Well, that's interesting too because there was there was a scene I think a little bit before that too where someone says uh, the, the the agent I think says to him like you can't like quit drinking and still hang out with your drinking buddies or whatever, right. and even like and even that he like tries to break things off with him, but then even then he can't because he's you're right he's like oh, I'll see you tomorrow or whatever. So yeah, that's definitely interesting. Really nailing the addiction part of sex addiction. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, my very last question I have here is just kind of about your experiences with Bob Crane outside of this movie. So did either of you watch Hogan's Heroes? Did you have any kind of impression of him going into the movie? Because I did not. I had not seen him in anything. I know David had seen some Hogan's Heroes, but you know, not all of them by any means so um what did you guys think i had checked out some hogan's heroes after i had seen autofocus because mm-hmm. um i think I, I i said before i don't know if it was while we were recording but it's um you know it's kind of loosely based on stalag 17 uh and right. and that's one of my favorite movies so i i was like oh i kind of have to check that out and i remember watching it and kind of just being like eh like it's like it's 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 a sit- 60 it's sitcom a, it's a sitcom yeah. you know it's just like whatever but uh yeah, I mean, it was like it was cool. The only other real reference to Bob Crane I have is like from the there's like a Dead Milkman song where they talk about Bob Crane. Uh, Life is shit, I think, is the song. Yeah, and they kind of Crane. reference Bob Crane in it, and 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 like that's the only other like way that I know of him. Uh, you know, beyond that, because <laughs> I never saw Super Dad. <laughs> <laughs> How about Gus the Field Kicking Mule? <laughs> yeah, Super Dad. Um, yeah, I guess uh, Kurt, Kurt Russell's in that. <laughs> um, I I think I had seen some Hogan's Heroes when I was a kid on like you know cable or UHF or whatever. Um, but again, you know, like you said, it was just you know, it was probably on Channel Eleven after F Troop. You know, I like I, I don't think I ever gave it much thought of who's that guy playing Hogan. Right. Um, and then but when the movie came out, I remember um, there were all kinds of articles about the uh, you know the the murder and the sex addiction. I remember his son actually uh, registered the domain bobcrane.com and put up uh, a lot of his uh, home movies. Really? You had to, you had to pay for them. Is that still up? I checked mm, that out. I checked it out last night. <laughs> it is now handled... It is now owned by, like, the agency that handles Bob Crane's name. It's no longer maintained as okay. a pay porn site. Okay. You know. Huh, interesting. <laughs> well, he always wanted to be a porn star, so, right. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Dreams do come true. Yeah. 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 I don't know. I think that was all. Yeah. Yeah. That was that, I guess. (laughs) All right. So why don't you guys tell us a little bit about your podcast? Okay. Uh, It's called Off the Cuffs, a kink and BDSM podcast. And every week we have a different guest come in and talk about uh, different facets of kink and BDSM lifestyles. Yeah, we yeah. kind of try to get everyone's personal relationship to uh, kink and fetish and BDSM or mm-hmm. swinging, any kind of, you know, alternative sexuality, alternative sexuality and, and um, 
just to get people's because you know it's easy for someone to say oh i'm into this thing or i'm into that thing but you know everyone kind of does it a little bit differently and it's something that i don't think we really meant to when we started the show but we found like through like feedback from like listeners that people were like oh like you know i kind of always thought something was wrong with me and now i'm listening to you and i'm like oh like other people do this too and it's it's kind of been great just you know, being able to network and, and um, I guess, like, re, you know, help people discover things about themselves, which is not something we expected when we started doing it. It was really more, um, you know, Max had been in the in the public, like, kink community for a long time, and I had always been kind of a private bedroom, you know, person, and then I had come into the community, and then I wanted to kind of document my journey, like, of learning all this new stuff, and... And then it kind of got away from us and yeah. just became something else. <laughs> That's actually we we literally just started out talking to to friends of ours like that were part of your journey, like the guy that owned our local dungeon, yeah, and like a pro dom we knew and things like that. And by episode twenty, we were talking to porn stars. You know, it just became yeah. this thing. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. And and yeah, I don't know. I mean, even like beyond like talking to porn stars, because I yeah. mean, like. It's funny because, you know, we'll get we'll get people that are like these well-known people on the show, but then we'll have episodes where we just have someone we met like at a dungeon and it's like the most fat, like they'll be like the most fascinating person. Yeah. Like, you know, uh, we did an episode on Vore with someone that we met like in our community. Yeah. Uh, and we talked about socks fetishism and and vor, and that was like one of the best episodes. <laughs> That's a great episode. Because <laughs> like, like, you know, there's not many people that are out there that are like, all I do is fetishize socks and being eaten. Right. So it's like, okay, <laughs> let's talk. Let's to you. talk to you about all that stuff. And yeah. I don't know. I think I think it's I think it's fun too because we bring like we're we're a bit self deprecating. We understand that the shit we're into is kind of like you know weird or abnormal, and we like to call it weird and. You know, we're we're yeah. not like shaming anyone and like saying your thing is weird. We're kind of a little right. being a little bit more inclusive about it and being like, mm-hmm. you know, we can laugh at it, but also be you know realize the power behind it and like this and that and the other yeah. thing. And I don't know. I think it's just it's fun. It's and it just it. I don't know. It's something that like became something that we just like had to do every week. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> Sorry if that was like a really long winded <laughs> answer. <laughs> That's really cool. Um. So, uh, along those lines. Do you have any episodes that you would recommend? Any particular ones that stand out that are some of your 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 favorites? And also, this is kind of a follow up. Are there any episodes that may be interesting to fans of True Crime? <laughs> That's uh, besides the tickled episode, which I've already recommended to everyone. And if oh, you missed you. me recommending it, you have to check out their episode with the person who made Tickled, and then go watch Tickled. Actually, maybe watch Tickled first. Um, but it's it's an amazing pairing. <laughs> yeah, we Thank that you. that episode dropped the day before it came out. It was like it was yeah. funny. That was like that was his press release for the movie. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it's like okay, like you know, we're, we 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 were like we're kind of small potatoes, but sh- like sure, like yeah. <laughs> uh yeah, uh we well there actually is a follow-up to that episode where we talked to uh one of the other people that are in the movie um in the movie Tickled, but it's not really it does. We don't really get too much into the crime portion of of that uh, mm. story. It's kind of more about that guy's journey into um, foot male on male foot fetishism mm. and how he made a living uh, doing basically what the person in uh, tickled 
did, but doing it ethically and legally. Yeah. Instead of being like a blackmailer, or, you know, whatever right. you want to call the guy, um, horrible person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, those are those are definitely cool to listen to together. Yeah. We have some uh, episodes that kind of deal with the law and BDSM. It's not really true crime related, but we we talked to a former uh, uh, NYPD sergeant. Yeah, yeah, who who worked in um, sex crimes. Yeah, and he's now now he's retired, and he's in, in a little bit in the BDSM community, and he came from the swing community. Yeah. So and and he was this SVU detective, so he knew all the stuff, you know, he knew the culture that he was investigating. Yeah. So that was really interesting. Um, and then we got it. And then we talked to a lawyer more recently who, yeah. and, and the two of them actually, I think do lectures together about BDSM and law. Yeah. Um, because you know, a lot of the stuff we do is technically illegal, illegal. <laughs> state to state, but... you know, state to state. Yeah. I mean like um, it's, you know, it's, it, it's consensual, but it's also, you know, it's but in most, as, most states, consent is not a defense so, for for yeah. abuse. They right. call it, I guess, or right. assault, I think is the assault. Yeah. Assault. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'd also recommend I think it's 50 and 51. The two we had with Lee Harrington. That's just not it's not true crime related at all, but they're just great. They're very heavy. Uh, they're not like most of our episodes. Yeah, they're very it's it's almost more like listening to a lecture. Yeah. Um, and but it's like great, 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 great information. BDSM knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. I would I recommend, you know, all those. I don't know. I mean, they're all so weird and different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I like the one we just did with uh, Sir Lady Bear, too. Well, that one was fun. Yeah. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. So I don't know. Check them all out. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, cool. We'll uh, we'll add some of those that you guys mentioned in the show notes um, directly, and then yeah, definitely very cool. Thank you. So the final question we have is, where can you be found on social media? Uh, our on Instagram and Twitter, we are at OCP Kink Off the Cuffs Podcast Kink. Right. Uh, and we can be reached by email at offthecuffspodcast at gmail.com and our podcast can be listened to on basically any podcast app out there. Also, if any of your listeners are on FetLife, we are uh, at Off the Cuffs on FetLife. I think all of their listeners that are on FetLife came mm-hmm. from us running their Probably. Our, <laughs> <laughs> um, our, oh, uh, uh, oh, oh, yes. Our, our, our booking uh, secretary person yes. for the show, Brooklyn Girl, says... Hello, Hello, and she loves yeah, you. She loves you guys. <laughs> she loves your show. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. I I can always tell on Twitter what new followers we have that you are sending our way. So <laughs> thank you guys so much. You've been so supportive basically from day one. You know, you were one of the first podcasts we connected with over Instagram, and we really, really appreciate it. So, And we're so happy to finally have you on the show. Thank oh, you. thanks. Yeah. So thank you. Thank, thank you, you for being with us. And, you know, hopefully we'll have another crossover in the future. I'll have to think of a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I'm sorry I was late. I'll be on time for the next one. <laughs> so thank you to Off the Cuffs podcast for joining us in that discussion. We had a great time uh, chatting. And um, as we wrap things up, Chelsea, what's your now playing? So my now playing, and this is one that I know you listen to also, it's the Good Morning Nancy podcast. Yes. They're a really great 
horror movie review podcast that we connected with in our infancy and also kind of just when they were starting out and they've been consistently just on point in their discussion of these movies. They take a kind of a female's perspective of these horror movies, which I think is really interesting. You know, they talk about a lot of great you know, female driven, female led horror movies, but also talking about you know the role of females in you know some horror movies that you might not typically think of, you know, as being very feminist movies like, say, uh, Slumber Party Massacre. <laughs> yep. Yes. Um, but they also covered The Ring. They did The Conjuring 1 and The Conjuring 2. Those were great. I really enjoyed those episodes. Yeah, and I know, I'm sure your personal favorite, though, is the two-part Vincent Price episode talking about his life and his movies. That was great. I oh, those were too. wonderful, and they were so in-depth. Um, I Yeah, I, I really, 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 really loved those. Those were great. Yeah. Um, so just go and check them out. They've had some cool, like, their mini-episodes are called Coffee Break episodes, and their more recent ones were about horror artists which yes. I know David can get behind yeah. you didn't make the cut this time maybe next time <laughs> you're my oh. favorite horror artist David oh I thank you and yeah just definitely you know give them a listen if you're looking for a break from true crime I know I need a break from true crime occasionally and they're one that you know I often go to because they're just really fun to listen to so. they are we love good morning Nancy so right. and that's Morning with a U, as in to mourn, but also Nancy is a Nightmare on Elm Street reference. So uh, what about you, David? What's your now playing? Uh, Well, my now playing is a double feature of Krampus and Home Alone, a pairing that I guess really I didn't think of the... (laughs) The pairing until we were getting ready to watch Krampus, but the two work really well together. Unfortunately, I wouldn't know because I fell asleep right at the beginning of Home Alone and just never woke up again. I'm asleep right now. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Uh, Krampus is, is amazing. So we mentioned it on our previous episode about holiday horror. And um, just a reminder, it's Michael Doherty who did Trick or Treat. It's his Krampus movie starring Adam Scott and Tony Collette. And it is so much fun. I think I liked it even better on a second viewing. It made me think more about what the ending means, which get into the spoilers, but it's so good. And it's so Christmassy. It's like evil teddy bears, evil gingerbread men, evil robots, evil jack-in-the-boxes, Christmas trees on fire. I don't know. It's it's great. Dog- Dogs and cats living together. Oh, wait. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, cool. Uh, uh, we had a lot of fun with that one. And then Home Alone I hadn't seen in uh, probably 15 years. So it's fun. It turns into like a Looney Tunes cartoon, but live action at the like latter third of the movie. And that was pretty fun. So yeah, Krampus and Home Alone. Uh, all right, let's move into Coming Soon. Chelsea, what do you have? My Coming Soon is I, Tanya, which just had its, I think, limited premiere on the 8th, um, but I'm hoping that it's going to be in Cincinnati soon because I would love to see it. It's the story of Tanya Harding and it's starring Margot Robbie and Sebastian. Yeah, winter the Winter Soldier, Sebastian Stan. It's the story of, obviously, Tanya Harding and her ice skating career and then finally the attack on Nancy Kerrigan. So it happened in 1994. I was, and you know, I vaguely recall it, but I feel like it's become part of our public conscious the the video of Nancy Kerrigan after the attack and I'm really interested in seeing kind of the story more from Tanya Harding's perspective because I feel like you know I've read about it a little bit we might cover it for the podcast but it does kind of feel like we've accepted that the events happened a certain way that maybe they didn't I know you're coming soon David but why don't you tell our listeners 
a little movie called The Last Jedi, directed by Ryan Johnson, that is coming out very soon. Um, as we're recording this, it is under a week. And it we're seeing the Thursday night preview with the double feature. Um, it's The Force Awakens and then The Last Jedi. That also happens to be Chelsea's birthday. So we're having a Star Wars-themed day. You ready for that? Oh, yeah, I'm ready. I got my costume ready. I'm dressing up like a porg. And I will be dressing up like Luke Skywalker. Some of you saw a preview of that at Halloween. Um, The hair is a little bit longer. It'll be a little bit more gray, fake gray. Yeah, are you saying I'm turning your hair gray? Never. Yeah, I'm so excited. I could not be, well, I could be more excited, but I'm very excited. What's the word? Stoked? Yes, you are stoked, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I'm stoked about The Lost Jedi. It's going to be rad. Speaking of my birthday, though, if you're a member of the Cult of Based on True Crime group, or if you've seen our Facebook page, I'm having a little birthday fundraiser for Every Town for Gun Safety, as many members of the true crime community probably know and remember. December 14th is also the anniversary of the Sandy Hook Elementary elementary school shooting before we record this episode we've already met the goal of two hundred dollars but you know if you want to donate more or just do it it's a great cause to you know end gun violence and preventable gun deaths and it's you know very very near to my heart so if you can't find the link just message me and i'll send you the link so Thank you. We could always include it in the show notes, too. Yeah, it's a great cause. So please, if you have the means and are willing, support that organization. We don't have a Patreon yet. So if you're looking for a place to put your extra money, every time for gun safety. Awesome. Great cause. All right. Well, you can find us on social media, Instagram at based on a true crime. You can like our Facebook page based on a true crime podcast. Please join our cult. It is a Facebook discussion group called Cult of Based on a True Crime, Twitter, Animated GIFs, Chat with Chelsea, at True Crime Based, our website, basedontruecrime.com. You can find us on iTunes, on Stitcher. You can find us on Google Play. Subscribe, rate, review. We're working on um, getting on a couple of other feeds as well. Yeah, if there's one that we're not on that you want us on, let us know. Besides Spotify, we've already submitted to Spotify and haven't heard anything yet. So we'll see. Yeah, apparently it takes forever and they're uh, fussy about it. So our podcast theme and supporting music was composed and performed by Nico Vatis of We Talk of Dreams, who can be found on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams, the website wetalkofdreams.com, and on Instagram at We Talk of Dreams. As we round out this episode, and as we're looking outside the window and seeing the snow fall down, I'm just reminded that death is but a door. And time is but a window. We'll be back. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.